0: Ave Maria Prima, uh, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Uh, well, the professional theologians will no doubt d- notice that there are other distinctions that could be made today, but this isn't an academic exercise. There's too many sources to cite, all of them, without confusing issues. Uh, as usual, I've edited and cut and pasted quotes for the sake of the sermon. And before we get going, I know Father's doing this, but I want to recommend this book to everybody. Magisterial Authority by Father Chad Ripiger. Uh, anyone that wants a really thorough covering, covering this topic, uh, that much more that can be done in a sermon, should uh, get this book, Magisterial Authority by Father Chad Rippinger. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that sowed good seed in his field. But while men were asleep, his enemy came and oversold cockle among the wheat and went his way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's start by reminding ourselves of what we're doing right now. As we've noticed over the past few weeks, or noted, uh, in the Catholic Church right now, we're having a, a Henry VIII moment, and it's uh, an absolutely epic disaster. And as we also have noted over the past few weeks, in you know, order to really appreciate the situation, and each one of us needs to understand it to make sense of what's going on right now between the Pope and the four cardinals, Cardinal Burke and uh, his companions. In order to really appreciate what's going on and why it matters and why it really matters, we need to get some perspective. And so as we've noted over the past few weeks, we needed to start by reviewing some fundamental points of the unchanging and unchangeable Catholic faith. So three weeks ago, we reviewed some of the basic teachings regarding marriage. Then two weeks ago, we reviewed some of the basic teaching regarding the sacrament of penance. And then last week we reviewed some of the basic teaching regarding the most blessed sacrament of the altar and receiving Holy Communion in a worthy way. Why do we focus on those uh, three sacraments? Well because so far the principal attack has been directed at those three sacraments. Now it's going to expand from there very quickly a direct attack on the priesthood itself. But that's next. But the principal attack so far has been uh, focused on these three sacraments. And so in order to appreciate what's going on, we needed to make sure we had a solid understanding of the true teaching of the church in these areas, because this is where the confusion is. Unfortunately, uh, we had to have such a detailed review, because as we're going to see in the course of these sermons, in our brilliant day and age, almost every important point that we've covered so far is being denied. Almost every important point we covered in the last three sermons is being denied. Now usually these denials are gussied up in all kinds of uh, you know, fancy language and verbal dancing around and so forth, but they're denials all the same. So more on that later. So now that we've got a, a good solid hold on, on the true teaching of the Church regarding marriage, sacrament penance. In Holy Communion. There's another area that's actually even more foundational that we need to cover before we start tying everything together. So, we're going to look, take a quick look at some of the basic truths in two areas. First, the truths, the saving truths, that Christ came down from heaven and died to give to us. Those truths for which God the Son became flesh, the truths for which our Lord was actually conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius spot, was crucified, and died for us. Those truths, that's first. Then second, we're gonna take a look at the means which Christ himself chose to transmit those truths to us. The means that Christ himself chose to transmit those truths to mankind from the very moment of his sending down of the Holy Spirit on the first Pentecost, from that very moment until the crack of doom right at the end of the world. So that's second. So the two areas we're going to take a closer look at today are, in the first place, the saving truths that Christ came down from heaven and died to give us. And then in the second place, the means which Christ our Lord chose to transmit those truths to us. So the very fact that we even have to address those truths is clear evidence of how unbelievably serious the crisis is because these are just foundational things. They're literally literally foundational truths. So let's get started. We'll start by addressing these truths, those saving truths that Christ our Lord came down from heaven and died to give us. Now there's a name for those truths, which we've all heard. The name for those truths is the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith. So the deposit of faith is this collection It's the collection of all the truths that were revealed by God. It has two parts sacred tradition and sacred scripture. The deposit of faith, it's also known as binding revelation or public revelation, was handed down from Christ to the apostles. So the deposit of faith, public revelation, closed with the death of the last apostle, St. John. Since then, There never has and there never will be any new public revelation, no more. The deposit of faith can't be added to, nor can anything be removed from it. As St. Jude points out in his epistle, the faith was delivered once for all to the saints. The faith was delivered once for all to the saints, once for all. There will never be anything new added to the deposit of faith. Because God didn't forget anything. There'll never be anything removed from the dvazda faith. Because God didn't make any mistakes. God isn't going to have a new idea here. In fact, God can't have a new idea. Why can't God have a new idea? Because God can't learn anything. He already knows everything. He hasn't forgot anything. He knows it all. So the faith was delivered once for all to the saints. The deposit of faith was delivered once for all to the saints. And since then, there never has and never will be any new public revelation. It's complete. It was entrusted by Christ our Lord to the apostles and their successors for the guidance of His Church. It contains both truths that we have to believe, in principles of conduct, things that have to be done. Okay, so the deposit of faith is composed of both Scripture and tradition. So now let's spend a few minutes talking briefly about each one. Scripture. Scripture is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. It's the Word of God. What does that mean? Well, the popes have made it clear that St. Thomas has a clear, a correct explanation uh, for the inspiration of sacred scripture. And it's actually really easy to understand. We just have to know the difference between a principal cause and an instrumental cause, and everyone here already does. When you sign your name with a pen or a pencil, the pen or the pencil, the instrument that you're using to sign your name is the instrumental cause. It's the instrument used to sign your name with, okay? So that's the instrumental cause of your signature. But the pen doesn't just jump up and start writing on the page, you'd have that weird organ music and it gets scary. It doesn't do that on itself. It has a principal cause. That's you. You grabbed hold of it. You're the principal cause of your signature. So you're the principal cause, and the pen or the pencil, whatever you use to write your name, is the instrumental cause. This is super easy to understand. You might vary your signature, depending on what kind of pen you use, what color of the ink it is. No matter what pen or pencil even paintbrush you use to sign your name, you're the principal cause. And the pen or the pencil or the paintbrush, the instrument used, use, that's the instrumental cause of your signature, okay? It's super easy to understand. You're the principal cause. The penny used is instrumental cause of your signature. Okay, this is exactly how Saint Thomas explains the inspiration of Scripture. The principal cause of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost is the principal cause. The Holy Ghost is the author of Sacred Scripture. And the instrumental causes of Scripture, the instruments that the Holy Spirit used to write these books, are the different men: Moses, Joshua, Daniel, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, etc., etc. It's so simple that even a young child can understand this. The Holy Ghost is the principal cause. The men, he's the author, the men are his instruments. What's an important consequence of this? Obviously, or it should be obvious for everyone without a newfangled uh, theology degree, obviously, if the principal cause of sacred Scripture, if the author of sacred Scripture is the Holy Spirit, then Scripture must be absolutely, utterly, and completely free from any error. Period. Close the book. Pope Benedict the Fifteenth. Cites Pope Leo XIII regarding this very point. And I quote, So far is it from it being the case that error can be compatible with inspiration, that on the contrary, it not only of its very nature precludes the presence of error, but it necessarily excludes it and forbids it as God, the supreme truth, necessarily cannot be the author of error. That's a no-brainer for everybody that doesn't have a Newfangled theology degree. God can't make an error. Consequently, it is not to the point to suggest that the Holy Spirit used men as his instruments for writing, and that therefore, while no error is referable to the primary author, it may well be due to the inspired authors themselves. For by supernatural power the Holy Spirit so stirred them and moved them to write, so assisted them, as they wrote, that their minds could rightly conceive only those and all those things which he himself bade them conceive. Only such things could they faithfully commit to writing and aptly express with unerring truth, else God would not be the author of the entirety of sacred scripture. Close quotes, that's Pope Leo XIII, cited by Pope Benedict XV. So if anyone were to suggest there were errors in Scripture, now we're not talking about a printing press error, obviously. But if anyone were to suggest there were any errors in Scripture, what's he actually saying? He's actually saying that the principal cause, the author of sacred Scripture, the Holy Ghost, is wrong, that he got something wrong, that the Holy Ghost got something wrong. You know what that is? That's a blasphemy. And not only is it blasphemy, it's a sin. It's a sin against the Holy Ghost. Don't think you want to go there. And yet, these days, this sin is as common, is the grains of sand on a beach. That great father in Dr. Church, St. John Chrysostom, said, strike the mouth of the blasphemer and sanctify the hand. Now, with proper motives, that's virtuous. That's not sinful. Pottery Pio punched out a guy, twice, because he insulted Our Lady. I love Pottery Peel. I love him. So scripture is an inspired, inerrant word of God. It's absolutely, utterly, and completely free from any error whatsoever. And anyone that denies that is a heretic. Now let's talk briefly about tradition. The word tradition comes from a Latin word, which means to hand something down or pass something along. So when we're talking about sacred tradition, we're talking about truths and practices that are in the deposit of faith, which have been handed down outside of sacred Scripture. So they're in the deposit of faith, but they're not contained in Scripture. The First Vatican Council taught, quote, "...by divine and Catholic faith, all those things must be believed which are contained in the written Word of God and in tradition." Close quote. In other words, all those things must be believed which are contained in Scripture and in sacred tradition. Okay, but what's in sacred tradition that isn't in sacred Scripture? I'll just give a few examples. Dogmas of the faith that can only be found in sacred tradition. Now, a dogma, what's a dogma? A dogma is a revealed truth that's been proclaimed by the Church for the belief for the faithful. So dogmas of the faith that can only be found in sacred tradition would include the dogma that Our Lady was immaculate and conceived. The dogma that Our Lady was assumed body and soul into heaven. The dogma that Our Lady is a perpetual virgin. A few examples of necessary practices would include the veneration of holy images, and also the adding of some water into the chalice is a practice that comes from our Lord Himself. That's not in Scripture, but when the priest puts water in the chalice, that comes from the Lord Himself. Okay, so when we speak of sacred tradition, we're referring to truths and practices in the deposit of faith that have been handed down to us outside of sacred scripture. That's what sacred tradition is. So if we add it all up, if we take sacred scripture and sacred tradition together, what do we get? We get the deposit of faith. And what does it contain? The deposit of faith contains first... Sacred Scripture, all 72 books of the Bible, it's the inerrant, inspired Word of God. So that's first, Sacred Scripture. Second, the dogmas of the faith, Our Lady's Perpetual Version, the pains of hell are eternal, everything in the Apostles' Creed, etc., etc. So that's second, the dogmas of the faith. Third, Christian morals. For example, no one who has a mortal sin on his conscience shall dare receive the Holy Eucharist before making a sacramental confession, regardless of how contrite he may think he is. Or contraception is a mortal sin. We must attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, etc. So that's third, Christian morals. Fourth, the seven sacraments. Baptism, confession, confirmation, holy communion, holy matrimony, holy orders, extreme unction, the sacrament of the sick. So that's fourth, the seven sacraments. Fifth, the hierarchical constitution of the church. Now that's a mouthful. The hierarchical constitution of the church means the organization of the church itself in terms of the faithful, under the priest, under the bishop, under the Pope, okay? So the faithful under the priests, the priests under the bishops, the bishops under the Pope. This comes from Christ Himself. So that's fifth, the hierarchical Constitution of the Church. So the deposit of faith, known as public or binding revelation, is a collection of all the truths that are revealed by God. It has two parts, sacred scripture and sacred tradition, and it contains sacred scripture, the dogmas of the faith, Christian morals, the seven sacraments, and the hierarchical constitution of the church. So, this deposit of faith is given by Christ our Lord to the apostles, and it closed with the death of the last apostle, St. John. So all the truths necessary for salvation have been revealed. All of them. Which means since then, there never has been, and never will be, any new public revelation. It can't be added to, nor can anything be removed from it, because it's complete. God put everything He wanted into it. It contains truths to be believed and principles of conduct, which means things to be done. It has two parts, as we've heard, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Okay, so let's remember that today we're taking a quick look at two areas. We've just considered the first area, the deposit of faith, the saving truths that Christ our Lord came down from heaven and died to give us. But even though all the truths for salvation have already been handed down, even though there will never be any new truths communicated to us from God, this still isn't sufficient. These truths need to be preserved, guarded, and interpreted for us. And that brings us to the second topic, which is the very means that Christ our Lord used to transmit these truths to us. He established this. So now we're going to have another one of those $5 words for the very means which Christ our Lord himself established to deliver these truths in the deposit of faith to it. This $5 word is the magisterium. The magisterium. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, the Latin word for teacher is magister where we get this is where we get the word for the teaching office of the church it's called the magisterium the teaching office of the church so what's the magisterium it's the divinely instituted instituted by god infallible indestructible perpetual living teaching authority of the catholic church that's the magisterium now the role of the magisterium this divinely instituted infallible, indestructible, perpetual, living teaching authority of the Catholic Church, the role of the Magisterium is to teach and explain to men what God has actually revealed in such a way that men may know all that God has revealed, only what He's revealed, and under the proper conditions, they do this infallibly, which means with no error. Now remember that our Lord commissioned His Apostles to go and teach. And He promised to be with them until the end of time. We can find this commission. It's called the Great Commission. It's right at the very end of St. Matthew's Gospel. You can turn right to the end of St. Matthew's Gospel. It's the very last few lines in St. Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and I quote. And Jesus' coming spoke to them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Going, therefore, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all days, even unto the consummation of the world." Close quote, the Son of God. So in the Great Commission, our Lord commissions His Apostles. An apostle comes from a Greek word, and that Greek word means a man that's commissioned by another to represent him. It means a man sent on a mission. He's not sent by himself, but he's sent by another. That's what the word apostle means. Our Lord commissions his apostles to teach all nations, to serve all things whatsoever he has commanded them, and to do this all days, even to the consummation of the world. So he sends his apostles to teach all nations all His truths for all time. That's what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is our Lord sent His Apostles out to teach all nations all the truths that He's given them for all time. All nations, all truths, all time. In other words, this commission involves teaching all His truths everywhere to everyone for all time. It's a universal commission. It covers everyone everywhere always. That's universal. And the Greek word for universal is Catholicos. Catholicos, that's where we get the word Catholic. We're the universal church founded on the Great Commission, given to the Apostles, directly by God the Son, whilst he was visibly present here on earth. So our Lord sends his apostles to teach all nations all his truths for all time. And so the apostles and the men they appoint to succeed him, which are the bishops, by Christ's own will and command, are the official teachers of the church. They're entrusted with our Lord, with guarding and explaining the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith. That's what the Magisterium does. The Magisterium is the apostles and their successors who are given the office of teaching, explaining, and handing on the deposit of faith. Now we're spending a little more time on this because it's so important. The point here is Christ our Lord established a visible church of true teachers. That's what we see in the Great Commission. Christ our Lord establishing a visible church of true teachers. Everyone needs to burn that into his mind. Christ our Lord established a visible church of true teachers. Our Lord established a visible church of true teachers. This is the exact opposite of what the renegade priests that led the Protestant revolt claim. Christ our Lord actually established a visible church of true teachers, but the renegade priests who started the Protestant Revolt claimed that He established an invisible church of true believers. And in point of fact, that message is also directly con- contradictory to what we just heard in today's Gospel, where, speaking of the kingdom of heaven, we learned that both the wheat and the cockle both the true believers and the sinners, which would include the unbelievers, both those will be found together in the church until the end. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that sowed good seeds in his field. But while men were asleep, his enemy came and oversowed cockle among the wheat and went his way. Both Saint Jerome. Aunt Saint Augustine understand this sleeping. When men were sleeping, they understand this to mean negligence and carelessness on the part of bishops and pastors of the church. And the result of their negligence and carelessness is as the enemy comes in and sows his cockle. So the result is, till the end of the world, the church is going to be a mixture of both true believers and the sinners, which include the unbelievers. So Christ our Lord established a visible church of true teachers. And so by his own will and command, the apostles and the men that they they appointed to succeed him, which are the bishops, are the official teachers of the church, entrusted by our Lord himself to guard and explain the deposit of faith. Now here's Pope Pius XII explaining this very point. I quote Pius XII. It is to the apostles, and by them to their successors, the bishops that Christ our Lord confided the truth which he came on earth to communicate to men. So there we have it, just in that one sentence. The truth which Christ our Lord came to communicate to men is a deposit of faith. And it's to the apostles and the successors that he confided. Now the Pope is going to explain the Magisterium a little more, okay? So we go back to Pius XII. It is to the apostles and by them to their successors that Christ Lord confided the truth which he came on earth to communicate to men. The function of teaching his church for the whole body of the faithful is, as everyone knows, belongs to Christ's vicar on earth, the Bishop of Rome. Okay, so the Pope has just explained that Christ gave the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, the job of teaching all the faithful in the world. Now he's going to explain the role that Christ our Lord has given the bishops of dioceses for Latin Catholics or Eparchies, you know, for the Greek Catholics or so forth. The function of teaching Christ church to the bishops. So here he goes. The function of teaching Christ church for the whole body of the faithful, as everyone knows, belongs to Christ's vicar on earth, the Bishop of Rome. And to the many bishops for the groups of members of the church confided by this vicar to their pastoral care. So the the groups, or the the dioceses, or eparchies and so forth. Now the Pope explains where do priests fit into all this. In accomplishment of their grave duty of teaching, the bishops will have recourse to the assistance of priests and also laymen, whose authority for teaching, however, is not the result of a personal superiority of knowledge, but of the mission which has been entrusted to them by the bishops, close quote, the Vicar of Christ. So Christ gives the mission to the apostles who give it to the bishops. The bishops can share that mission with priests in the pastoral ministry. So if you ever heard of priests getting faculties, that's just a $2 term that generally means, among other things, he's been commissioned by his bishop to preach. So that means he can actually teach in the name of a church, because one of the descendants of the apostles has given him that power. So that's that's how I, I have faculties to preach and teach in the name of church. That's why we have to do our homework because we're responsible to teach in the name of church and not glorify ourselves, you know, or talk about football or stuff like that. Okay, that doesn't make us part members of the magisterium. That belongs to the successors of the apostles. So the Pope and the bishops in union with him are the members of the magisterium. There are two ways then that the successors of the apostles, the Pope and the bishops in union with him, teach. The truths infallibly contained infallibly teach the truths contained in the deposit of faith. The ordinary magisterium and the psalm magisterium. Now, the ordinary magisterium is a continuous teaching of the Pope and Bishops in union with him. When this reflects the constant teaching of the church, and thus they're teaching revealed truths that are found in the deposit of faith. When they reflect the constant teaching of the church, then the teaching found in such sources, as papal sermons, approved catechisms, encyclical letters, the traditional liturgical prayers or practices of the church, are all infallible expressions of the ordinary magisterium. They're infallible expressions of something in the deposit of faith when they reflect the constant teaching of the church. St. Vincent de Lorenz explained this principle some 16 centuries ago. Those truths have been taught always, everywhere, and by all are part of the deposit of faith and are infallible. Again, those truths which have been taught always and everywhere by all are part of the deposit of faith and are infallible, always and everywhere by all. Now we're not talking a mathematical statement, it's a theological statement. But uh, always nearby all. So the Catholics that have professed the faith all over the world, all through time, um, all, all, so always, it's all through, through the time, since ancient times, everywhere, in the whole church, and by all, by all the ones that are orthodox professors of the faith, that's uh, part of the deposit of faith, and it's infallible. For example... Purpose of life, we all know from our catechism, is we're made to know, love, and serve God in this life and be happy with Him forever in the next. Although that can be stated in various ways, this truth has been taught always and everywhere by all. So it's part of the deposit of faith, and it's infallibly uh, taught by ordinary magisterium of the church. It's in virtually any cate- decent catechism. One would pick up words to that effect. Okay? Other common examples would be that contraception is morally sinful, or that the doctrine of the priesthood is limited to men only. Okay? So the ordinary magisterium is the continuous teaching of the popes and the bishops in union with him. When those teachings reflect the constant teaching of the Church held always and everywhere by all, and thus their revealed truths found in the deposit of faith, then papal sermons Bishop sermons, pastoral letters, approved catechisms, encyclical letters, traditional liturgical prayers and practices of the church are all infallible expressions of the ordinary magisterium. The solemn magisterium. The solemn magisterium is used much less frequently than the ordinary. It's a formal judgment or formal definition clarifying some issue and determining the true meaning of some truth that's contained in or necessarily connected to the deposit of faith, or condemning something that isn't in it. An act of a solemn magisterium can be exercised either by the Pope alone, by the bishops in union with the Pope at an ecumenical council. When does the Pope use his solemn magisterial power? when he makes an ex cathodic pronouncement. Now that's a formal and authentic declaration on a matter of faith or morals. We all know the four points that should be present, that have to be present for a papal declaration to be ex cathedra. First, the Pope must be teaching in virtue of his apostolic authority. Second, on a matter of faith and morals. Third, with intention of making a definite decision. Fourth, to be held by the whole church throughout the world. So it's apostolic authority, matter of faith or morals, definite decision, whole church. And in this regard, there are three very important points. one, the Pope does teach ex cathedra; in other words, when he, one, intends to make a definite decision, two, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, three, on a matter of faith or morals, four, for the universal church, he is actually prevented by the Holy Spirit from teaching error. Any papal teaching that meets these conditions is infallible, that is to say, it cannot be erroneous, and it's irreformable, it cannot be changed. What are those three important points again? When the Pope teaches ex cathedra, he's prevented by the Holy Spirit from teaching error. When the Pope teaches ex cathedra, his teaching is infallible, that is to say, it cannot be erroneous, and when the Pope teaches ex cathedra, it's irreformable, that's to say, it cannot be changed. Now this teaching, ex catholic does not require the use of a set formula. Any words may be used that will sufficiently indicate the definitive nature of the decree. Infallibility works in a negative fashion. The Holy Spirit won't allow the Pope to make an erroneous statement in those precise conditions. Can the Pope make errors in other conditions? Yeah, he sure can. We'll have a lot more on that later. But if ever the fourth commandment, honor thy father and mother, if ever the fourth commandment applied anywhere, it certainly applies here. We must always give the Pope every benefit of the doubt. More on that later. Another important point, infallibility is not inspiration. The Holy Spirit does not move the Pope to say or write something. The Holy Spirit does not move the Pope to say or write something. Infallibility is not revelation. The Holy Spirit does not reveal what the Pope should teach or define. It's a negative protection. He can't get it wrong. There's a good explanation. Frank She made a good explanation to conceive of this. And he used it. It's, it's sort of a ridiculous analogy, but you'll, you'll remember it. He said, imagine we're, we have a trigonometry test, and there's one person that has infallibility in trigonometry. So this is why it's ridiculous. So everybody else in the classroom has three options with a question. They can get it right, they can get it wrong, or they can leave it blank. But that one person that had infallibility in trigonometry, he either gets it right or he leaves it blank. He just can't get it wrong. He's protected from getting it wrong. Okay. Another very extremely important point. There are real limits to the Pope's teaching. The First Vatican Council explained clearly the limited role of the Pope's teaching in these words. Quote, the Holy Spirit was not promised to the successors of Peter, so that by his revelation they might make known some new teaching, but so that by his assistance they might devoutly guard and faithfully set forth the revelation handed down through the apostles, that is to say, the deposit of faith. Close quote, the First Vatican Council. No new revelation. I'll repeat that quote. The Holy Spirit was not promised to the successors of Peter, so that by his revelation they might make known some new teaching, but so that by his assistance they might devoutly guard and faithfully set forth the revelation handed down to the apostles, that is to say, the deposit of faith. That's the first Vatican Council. So the Pope can and should explain things perhaps more clearly that have been revealed. He can and should apply the unchangeable teachings and principles and dogmas found in the deposit of faith to new situations. But in the sense of coming up with some novel thing overheard in the church, no. No new teaching. No new teaching. The Pope is the chief custodian and guardian and teacher of the truths found in the deposit of faith. He's not some kind of guru. No new teaching. One last important point here. Quote, the vicar of Christ can commit the authority which has been placed with him only to the degree in which he intends to do so, close All right, so what does that mean? It means the Pope has the power to decide whether or not he will use his papal powers, his Christ-given authority to teach. And it means that he only uses it to the degree that he decides to. He's free to teach infallibly or not whether we speak of his ordinary exercise of infallibility, repeating what was held always and every by all, whether we speak of his extraordinary infallibility, when he speaks ex cathedra under the conditions we've just explained. It's completely up to him. If he decides not to use it, then he certainly won't be using it. We had a really clear example. Benedict Sixteenth wrote some books on Jesus, and he's in a dialogue with a Jewish rabbi. But in it, he points out he's writing in private capacity. In other words, he's not invoking his papal powers. It was a great th- great thing that he did that, because you don't have to worry, because there are strange things in it, but he's just—he's not writing as Pope Benedict. Then Ignatius Press puts Pope Benedict instead of Joseph Ratzinger, would have been the right way to title it, because he wasn't using his powers in this thing, he was engaging in a theological debate and not actually using his papal powers. That's a very concrete, gra- they have to decide to do it, because they, they can decide to use it or not to use it, and that's just a concrete example of deciding not to use it. Okay, so the Pope has the power to decide whether or not he will use his papal powers. He's free to teach infallibly or not. It's completely up to him. If he decides not to use it, then he certainly won't be using it. Okay, so we look at the solemn magisterial powers of the Pope. The other act of the solemn magisterium is done by the bishops in union with the Pope at an ecumenical council. When the council fathers explicitly state that they are defining and teaching the Catholic faith, or when they attach an anathema, you know, a solemn curse, to those who would deny some truth. In other words, when they're teaching, they're telling us what's inside the deposit of faith. When they're anathematizing, they're cursing, they tell us what's outside. Okay? So, teaching, they're telling us it's inside. Anathematizing, they're telling us it's outside. Okay? If the acts of the general counsel are not in any of those two categories, then they fall under the ordinary magisterium. okay? So the Councils, here's the breakdown. Psalm, the Fathers are explicitly uh, defining and teaching the faith, or they're cursing those who deny a truth. All the rest falls under the ordinary magisterium. Here's an example of an infallible act of the Psalm Magisterium at the Council of Trent. If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, there are truly, really, and substantially contained the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, If anyone denies that, but you'll say it's it's by a sign or figure of force, let him be anathema. Let him be excommunicated. Okay? Remember, whether they're taught by the ordinary magisterium or the psalm magisterium, these infallible truths are not new. They're all drawn from the unchangeable deposit of faith, delivered once from all to the apostles. Okay. These truths are not new, but they are infallible. As far as our response to these teachings, church teaching is also very clear. Vatican I, by the divine and Catholic faith, all those things must be believed which are contained in the written Word of God and in tradition, and that are proposed by the church as a divinely revealed object of belief, either in a psalm pronouncement or in an ordinary and universal magisterium. Close quote, the first Vatican Council. So let's sum everything up today. God didn't set up an invisible church of true believers. He didn't order his apostles to write a book so 34,000 different denominations could argue over what it meant. He established a visible church of true teachers, the teachers of the apostles and their successors, the bishops, to whom our Lord gave the unchangeable and unchanging deposit of faith. The deposit of faith contains two things, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Our Lord sent down the Holy Spirit to protect and guide the magisterium so to it can infallibly protect and teach those truths that are contained in the deposit of faith. Those truths which are held always and everywhere by all are infallible teachings of the church covered by the power of the ordinary magisterium. Those truths which have been solemnly proclaimed ex-catholic by a pope or defined or cursed by a general counsel are infallible teachings of the church covered by the solemn magisterium. We do not belong to an invisible church of true believers. We belong to a visible church of true teachers. Christ established the one true church to teach the one true faith. The faith without which it is impossible to please God.